Hi, and welcome to the Burlap Podcast. My name is Chris Abel, and I'm here with my co-host... Chris Fomsby. Also president of Burlap. Thank you for starting this. This is a fun podcast to be on. Yeah, here we go. Let's do it. What are we talking about today? Today? Well, I want to start off with this. I think this, everyone kind of knows the stereotype of millennials, that they, they want experiences over purchases. I mean, marketers are dealing with this all the time. If you even look at like car commercials, you know, I saw one this last week and it was, you know, this Jeep and you could put a surfboard on it and go into the mountains, which that doesn't make sense. But you know, like you could buy this experience. There was really a Jeep with a surfboard in the mountains or no, you just, no, oh, okay. I was, I was going to say, silly. okay. Um, but it was like, it, oh, these, these advertisers are trying to appeal to the, these experiences. And I think there's some truth to this. Like I see this in my life all the time to the point where uh, I think this is true to the point where it can even cause anxiety in emerging generations. Like, there's this question of like, oh my gosh, are we experiencing enough? Are our lives big enough? Do I need that new car so that I can go to the beach and have a bonfire with cool looking people? As if that purchase will get you there. Um, and just to, as an example, I remember I have this memory of being a freshman in college and seeing on, I think I had Facebook at that point. I can't remember exactly, but seeing someone on social like media. MySpace. I saw someone on MySpace. Yeah, that <laughs> I don't even was. know what MySpace is. You never I had for, one? I just forgot what it is. I mean, I haven't talked about it. Was that the music one? Yeah. Oh, okay. It was, yeah, 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 you had like your, your top eight friends and music you could play on your profile. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, they brought it back, but then, it, you know, I'm I don't know. I'm surprised I even remembered that. Honestly, I haven't talked about it in forever. Well, you're you're so cool, Chris. Well, you know, I just deep back and just reach deep into the archives and pull that out for you. Well, we're gonna be doing some archive pulling. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, it's fine. So I'm I'm a freshman. I'm on MySpace. I see this dude in my class who's um, like in the Alps somewhere, like doing these European awesome things. And I just remember feeling completely just not like I didn't stand a chance compared to this guy. Like, there were people who had these amazing lives, amazing experiences. I remember feeling really badly about myself because I wasn't as amazing as this person. It felt really unfair. And so there's actually a name for this experience, this idea of feeling like other people are having experiencing experiences that you are not. That name is... FOMO, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. Now, it's beyond just like seeing someone do extraordinary things with their lives on Facebook or social media. It can even be something as simple as missing a party, seeing people hang out without you. All sorts of ideas go behind this. But uh, have you encountered this word, Chris? Well, let me, let me just talk about a couple of things from, from what you just said. First of all, yeah, I think experience is really a, um, a key factor in the life of millennials and really generation Z as well as we're beginning to uncover the more we learn about them. But so, yeah, so experience over materialism, maybe if we said it that way or consumerism or stuff, right? Right. I think there's a segment or several segments, if you will, that overlap that allow you to see that some people are still driven by stuff and that's just always going to be the case. But so generally speaking, as it relates to experience and millennials and Gen Z desiring that over stuff, I think that's relative relatively true across the board in most of the research that we're seeing, if not all of the research. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, yeah, FOMO is not new, really. I mean, we've given it some 
language, <clears throat> excuse me, giving it some language to use. But really, I mean, as a high school, middle schooler, whatever, you know, you're sitting around and wondering what everyone else is doing on a Friday night when you're at home and they're ha- having a party. The only reason why you know there's a party is because you didn't get the invitation that was being passed around in the hallway that day. I mean, we didn't have media, social media then to know that like everyone's posting about this party or whatever, but you're still sitting there and you're going, I wonder what's happening, right? So that fear of missing out is not new. I don't think it's, I mean, it's, you know, yeah, I don't think we can call it new. I think we can call it expanded maybe or or enhanced in the fact that now we have so many channels in which to see what our friends are up to that it creates that anxiety for us that that we're going to miss out. Uh, one of the ways I've seen it defined is, I mean, and I think this is a, a just a simple Google search led me to a, a recent article from Time Magazine. It's called, uh, the article is basically called I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but if I remember right, it's something to the effect like how to overcome it, right? So it was addressing the fact that it's real. Yeah. They define FOMO as the uneasy and sometimes all-consuming feeling that you're missing out, that your peers are doing in the know about or in possession of more or something better than you. Under this framing of FOMO, nearly three quarters, three quarters of young adults reported they experienced the phenomenon. I don't know the degree to which they've experienced it. For some, it may be, you know, a small sort of degree in their life. And for others, it may just totally all consume them. I'm not sure, but I think it's a real thing. And it's, I mean, it's becoming more and more important to figure out how we address this as the church, particularly as we help people. So anyway, is that... No, I like that. I like your idea of the, like, this has been around, like this is part of human nature, but it, for millennials, um, and I, you know, I don't, I haven't seen the research personally as much with Gen Z, but I know with millennials, um, specifically, it's like, you're missing that party every day. Like every day on social media, you are seeing parties happen without you or things that you should have to experience. What's fascinating is it works with all sorts of stuff. I remember, uh, you know... This last Halloween season or pumpkin pie season or pumpkin spice season, as some people, mm-hmm. yoga pants and pumpkin pie, pumpkin spice lattes, um, that there's a lot of people, there was a, there was one event nearby and it was a pumpkin wine fest and it had thousands of RSVPs because people like you have an idea of what this looks like. like people immediately want to go out to this place. It's an event you don't want to miss. Like you'll work your schedule around it. You just don't want to see pictures later on of people enjoying this thing. Or if it's an ongoing event, you see pictures of people doing stuff, and then you want to go do it too so that you have the experience also. It drives a lot of what we do. But yeah, in a lot of ways, it's like missing a party every day. You know, it's, it becomes part of who we are. Oh, and let me just stop there for a minute yeah. because I don't want to, as I'm reflecting on what I just said, I don't want to minimize the FOMO in, that people are experiencing, right? Because I don't, when I say it's been around for a long time, I'm not trying to be that guy who's like, well, generations are all the same, blah, right. blah, blah. I'm just saying that like where we are today is different. is different. And the reason that we are where we are is because of the social media that has brought us to the level of of it being three quarters of a generation, right? So I, I don't, I'm not trying to be that guy going, oh, yeah. we've always had FOMO. I'm, because I meet those pastors and church leaders all the time when we're out there doing the training and stuff. They're like, well, this is nothing new. We've been talking about these generational shifts forever and blah, blah, blah. And that's just a very narrow, small way to look at generations and the change in generations and the transition from one generation to the other. So anyway, 
I think I, I I think I may have made it sound like that it wasn't such a big deal. It is a big deal. Yeah, and I, I agree. Just go back and highlight that. Oh, thank you. Let's talk about the social media for a minute, though, because that's really I think the core of where this comes from is you know back in the day you wouldn't. I think see it's the core of where it's applied. I think the core of where it comes from is inside the human right. Heart. Right. I mean that's what we want. That's what right. we we're trying to get at. I think. Right. Yeah. But the social the media, external yes circumstances the influence, are different. Right. Yeah. So the influence is that you have access to other people's lives all the time. You know, what they're doing, what they're thinking, uh, the photos that they post. They, people, I mean, you, you, and from someone who posts on social media, there's that desire, right, of wanting to be like, oh, this is really cool. I want everyone to see what's, like, see this thing. Um, but all sorts of studies show that the more screen time someone has, the more likely they are to be depressed, have anxiety. Um, I mean, the having a whole generations of you know, people growing up surrounded by this isn't great for mental health. It's unfortunately like a real thing that's impacting, you know, our happiness and our fulfillment, how we kind of view ourselves, right? Because when you're comparing yourself, it's like the old phrase, right? Like comparison is the thief of joy. And that's kind of where FOMO comes from is a little bit of that is we don't want to miss out. But I think what's fascinating about this is no two millennials are going to be FOMO for the same thing, right? So an example of this is um, I have, uh, if I found out some friends had a board game night without me, like I'd be a little bit of like I'd be I'd be sad, right? I'd, or if there was going to a board game night, like I would not want to miss that out. I'd have a fear of missing out on this cool experience. My friends are going to have a good time without me, um, but that's like very few people are going to be excited about board game nights, right? The opposite might be true of like, oh my gosh, people are going to the sports game. Like, this is a big game Friday. How do I how do I get there? Am I, what's going to happen if I don't get to go? Um, but for me, you know, like I, I don't really care. Like if somebody... So FOMO is unique. I mean, I think it's unique in the sense that the way that we experience it and the way that it, it uh, we're implicated in FOMO changes based on the events of my friends. In other words, yep. sports game night, whatever it might be, right? Just a nice dinner party, whatever it is. But the the core longing for what's being experienced at those things has, hasn't has changed or isn't that unique. It really comes back, I think, right, to relationships, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I just feel like when I experience those things, and I, and I have FOMO to a degree too, right? I mean, I look at what people are doing. I think we all do. Right. And then that fear of, being left out is just basically the same thing in my opinion. Right. And it's like, or maybe not the same thing, but a modification or a alteration of it. And I don't find that it's as much about the activity as it is what I know I would miss if regardless of the activity. Right. So do you think that's a, a valid way to think about it for people? Yeah, absolutely. You see this happen with, um, I mean, I feel bad. There's a, there's a popular, um, there's a popular Christian organization that works with high schoolers um, that teaches their leaders to recruit the cool kids at their local high schools. So these these um, these leaders will go into high schools, they'll befriend kids, and if they can get like the t- the captain of the football team, if they can get somebody with influence, somebody who is confident and seen as kind of a trendsetter in um, in a certain culture in a certain community, if they can get that kid to come to this church event, they can get a ton of kids. That kid's worth like 40 kids. And it's, and I think out of the, out of the core of that is they're taking advantage of this, this idea of FOMO that if like that guy's going, then that means 
there's something cool going on. And if I don't go, then I'm going to miss out. And you see that there's certain people that kind of create FOMO where they go. You see this in churches too. If you can get certain kind of people in places, um, then you, you know, cool people or influencers. Um, I, I've even heard a church grew because like a famous sports player went to that one. So people are like, oh man, if the sports player goes to that church, then I'm going to go to that church. You know, that it, it works sometimes in all, in all sorts of ways. It works with marketing. It's why certain skateboarders get paid to wear things. It's why advertising works, right? right. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody's going to um, wear a certain shoe or wear a kind of underwear or eat a certain kind of food. Like this is advertising. It works that way because somebody cool's doing something and we don't want to be left out. Um, but so what? So what is your point there? I'm not, I mean, I know those. What you uh, said is true, and for the most part, I, right. I think there's still not just national min- youth ministry organizations, but churches, or even you know, uh, pockets of small groups or whatever who are trying to develop, inf- you know, a, a place for influencers in order that they can attract other people around them. Right. What does that have to do with FOMO? Are you saying that's the other side of it? Yeah. That's like the manipulation side of it. Like you're using something to your advantage to create that fear in someone so that they show up to your stuff. It's entirely the premise behind viral marketing. Viral marketing is somebody cool or somebody other than me is experiencing something I'm not, and I want to be on that bandwagon, right? Uh, it's when a video gets shared a ton of times. Nobody's promoting that video. It's when a certain kind of fashion comes out, and I need to start wearing it because I saw someone else wearing it, right? It motivates actually a lot of marketing. It's why so many marketing firms are kind of eschewing traditional media types. Like commercials aren't doing it anymore, but if they can get the right person to wear the thing or the right person to tweet it out. It's a little bit of the FOMO. I don't want to miss out on something that somebody else is I in think, on. I think you're right on, and generally speaking. Yeah. Gen Z research, however, and I know we're still bringing it together to try to figure out this up-and-coming generation. Gen Z is, I mean, across the board, most of the studies are showing that Gen Z is like, don't give me the celebrity. Don't give me the, you know, the, the person who's supposed to look like that in whatever ad it is or whatever. It's more like, give me the real deal, right? And I think that when you talk about viral marketing and you talk about the, what the premise of it, I think in some ways, yeah, you're right in the sense that you're trying to get someone to promote your stuff and hope that it goes viral. But the things that I see actually go viral are the things that you don't even know who the person is in this stupid cat video or the, right. you know, it's the funny, it's the out of the ordinary, it's the unique and surprising things that go viral. And I think that is what's actually captivating people's imagination more than just a celebrity that's saying, hey, don't miss out on this because right. if you do, I will, you know, you won't be like me. Well, here's an example. Like the hit TV show going on right now. What is everyone talking about? Stranger Things. Stranger Things season two just came out. I have not heard a single celebrity push it. I haven't seen any advertising. Everything about Stranger Things has been through word of mouth. It's been my friends are talking about that show. And so I'm watching it because I don't want to be left out. I want to have conversations with my friends. That's a perfect example of fear of missing out on just a TV show, just a Netflix show. And they Netflix is, they treat it like it's already a viral hit before it's a viral hit. And they, they know people are going to be talking about it. But the, the reason that people, are, the, the powerful thing is it's everyday people who are sharing this. You don't want to be left out of a movement that people are doing. Now, what's what I think funny? Here's just a little background. I think this I've never seen any research on this, but um, back when I was an undergrad, I did a, a, some research in a paper on suffering. It was more from a theological perspective, but I tapped into some of the physiological stuff. There's a part of the brain 
called the anterior cingulate cortex. And this is where pain is registered. So what's funny is there's two different parts of the brain where pain kind of touches. One part is, oh, that's dangerous. It's kind of like a cold and calculated, this is injury. And there's another part of the brain that's like the fire alarm going off in the hallway. Like ding, 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 move your hand. This hurts so bad, right? That's the different part mm -hmm. of the brain. And what they found, what these scientists have found, these researchers, is that that part of the brain is also not only where it makes pain so agitating, but it makes where social, social anxiety, isolation, the feeling of being cut out, that is the same area of the brain where that is so powerful. So sometimes you can give, they found that medication for social anxiety will be a pain, will take care of pain, and that pain medication will take care of social anxiety. That's how closely correlated they are in the brain. Like your brain, for all intents and purposes, thinks that social disconnection is just as bad for your body as literally physical harm. So it's in the same area of the brain, which I think at the core of what we're talking about here is FOMO is fear of missing out, not on just an event for the sake of an event, but missing out on the thing that other people are doing. They're missing out on the connections that can be formed, missing out on the, what the tribe is doing. And I think at the core of it, like we can make fun of it and laugh a little bit about it or talk about the marketing side, but at the core of FOMO is, hey, am I part of the whole? Am I part of something? Am I going to be left behind? Am I, uh, do I have my tribe? Am I going to have friends? Uh, it's actually like something that's really, really, really important to the brain and to just human life, you know? And I think that's something we need to take into consideration. It's so powerful. Here's another example. Um, I don't know if I've told you this story before. When I, when I went to seminary in DC, I, I got training through the Smithsonian. I was going to be a tour guide in their oh, hall. Oh, yeah. You, I remember you saying something about that. Yeah, in the, the, right uh, the, the Natural History Museum. And so uh, I was going to give a tour guide in the Hall of Human Origins. It talks about like all these, you know, previous humans, humanoid species right. and Homo erectus and, you know, the Neanderthal and all these things. And so they, uh, they give training. So I went through the training. I never actually gave any tours, but I went through the <laughs> training and I thought it was fascinating. They said, people are going to come in here and they're not going to trust science. They're not going to believe in this kind of stuff. They're going to be science deniers, uh, and do not argue with these people. Like your job is not to convince them. Your job is to present the facts and then just wait. And they said, a lot of these people who are science deniers are not doing it because they're rational. They're not making rational decisions here. They're that way because their communities are that way. And so if they decided to, you know, buck the trend here, what they're really doing is they're being willing to be rejected for having a different belief than their tribe has. And so we, as the tour guides, need to be realizing they're in our area of the museum for 20 minutes maybe, but whatever it is we're challenging them on has potential consequences in their lives and in their families and in their relationships. And I thought it was fascinating that the Smithsonian of all places was teaching people so they to were, have compassion yeah. for people who have other consequences of their belief systems. So compassion, but also this sense of an importance of community being greater than that 20 minute experience in that part of the museum. Right. So like, where are they coming from? Uh, who are they as a, as a community, not just as a unique individual. And I think that's an important element that the church needs to remember, church leaders need to remember, is that no one is coming, people don't come from nowhere to visit or to come to worship service or to, you know, attend the special event you're hosting. They're coming from a narrative that's a story from a community somewhere. Mm -hmm. And identifying that and highlighting that is key and not saying, uh, something to the degree like, well, FOMO, what's the big deal? 
right? right? As soon as you start treating people without that compassion, then it becomes, I think, a um, a passing trend or a fad in people's mind as opposed to a real legitimate issue. If three quarters of millennials have experienced to some degree FOMO, the church needs to understand how are we helping people deal with this, just like it's any other kind of anxiety. And I'm not sure we are. I'm not sure it's that big of a deal to us, and it right. should be a bigger deal. And recognizing they, that people are coming from a community that has a, has a narrative, has a story, that people would have to leave that in order to come to something else is really quite, I think, brilliant on the part of the Smithsonian to be able to think that way and to really help us as a church even navigate that. So I, that's really interesting. Yeah, I hadn't heard the full part of that story. Uh, Why did you never give a tour? You just didn't decide um, to go with it? You get I missed the night that did security clearances, and then I had to keep coming back, and the security team wasn't there every time I came back. And then by uh, the time I was going to get it, I was like six months left in D.C. So. I see. But I would have loved it. Really, yeah. I like that kind of science and religion. You stuff. missed a meeting? That's surprising. One meeting. <laughs> I had to be... Oh, funny. Yeah, funny. <laughs> no worries. Sorry. <laughs> well, so there, I want to also not just make this kind of like pie in the sky, like big big idea stuff, but um, also see how this relates to church. And one way, this just came to me now, you know, I was thinking about sometimes the sometimes the Christian life does feel like one big FOMO, you know, and I, I know this maybe is a little antiquated, but I, I'm just thinking about the idea of, you know, for some people becoming a Christian means they're giving up a lifestyle of, for instance, like for young adults, like partying is out there. There's a sub, there's a subculture of young adults who are like out to the club, out drinking every night, like their social activities. Again, this is a subculture. I'm not saying this is generally, I'm not trying to stereotype here, but for some people they're missing out is their FOMO is that there's parties going on that I'm not part of. And that's where my tribe is. That's where I get connection. That's where I can be seen or be noticed by a girl or a guy or whoever I want. Um, and sometimes the you know sometimes the idea of piety feels like you're missing out on all this other fun. Sometimes the idea of giving up like sinful behavior, even and we don't talk about that a lot, but can feel like FOMO, like I'm missing out on stuff other people are doing that I'm not supposed to do now as a Christian. And that's fascinating because to me, for a long time, for the long time, the church has been basically. Uh, you came up with a kind of a funny acronym earlier, so they've fought FOMO with. FOMU. FOMU. <laughs> right, fear of messing up. So F-O-M-U, right. fear of messing up. So for the long time, I think the church has battled FOMO of missing out on good things, but the fear of missing messing up and punishment. We've actually used kind of fear and consequences as a way to battle. Well, you don't want to do that stuff because really you're only missing out on judgment. Yeah, yeah right. No, I think that's true. And I think you... I think you were alluding to this earlier when you were talking about um, an attractional method of ministry or church growth or whatever. You know, you get influential people there and people want to be attracted by that. And I think what, what I'm hoping we can help churches steer away from, particularly as it relates to reaching emerging generations, not that all generations aren't important. You know they are to me, that we're living with six generations in the U.S. today and, and finding a way for everyone to live intergenerationally within the, the church is really important to me. However, I feel like we know the least about millennials and about Gen Z because they're simply the, the newest generations, right? So the more we can understand and study them, the better. I feel like in the midst of saying all that, that one of the things I want to help churches steer away from is creating 
events with an agenda of fear based. Like, so we're going to do this. And if you're not here, you're going to wish you were, as opposed to saying, no, if you're here, we're just going to live in the present with you and be grateful that you're here. You know, and I feel like so much of what is driving the church in general is fear, right? Um, across the board, you know, pastors are afraid they're, 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 you know, they're not getting younger. They're just getting older. They can't find millennials to come to church or they whatever the reasons are, it's creating this fear. And so fear drives us to do crazy things. And one of the things I think we are, I'm seeing that I'm hoping we can steer people away from is this idea of manipulating right. or taking advantage of might be a better way to say it of this FOMO to get people to come to my stuff. So everybody get online and, you know, or get your phone out and, and share a picture of we're here or whatever. And I think, I think that's helpful for the community that's there, but when it's helpful for the community that's there, but really meant to make people feel they're missing out. I don't think that's any different than when we used to just practice FOMO, (laughs) fear of missing up, in other words, or messing up. In other words, if you don't get your life right, you're going to miss this opportunity. Right. And they're both based in fear. I think they're correlated. Yeah. Just simply because they are based on fear. We know people are looking for something. What are they looking for? They might not even know what they're looking for. But as soon as we start to try to invade that space of discovery for them, that's when I think it becomes an agenda. And that's when I think the inauthentic, the inauthentic way of doing incarnational ministry, you know, makes its appearance. And in that case, we can never recover, in my opinion. So the, the, the lesson Does that here make is, sense? Yeah, I don't no, know. So yeah. I would, to clarify, like, let me, let me try to spit this back at you and see if this is what you're saying. Uh, the advice here is don't make FOMO your goal. We're not talking about this so that you can utilize it right, for your exactly. advantage yes. strategically. We're talking about it because underneath fear of missing out is fear. And that's not a great motivator. Uh, what I heard, I went to this conference last week at a church down in Dallas, and one, one thing they said that I love, they said, um, our goal is to create an excellent experience for whoever comes in the door. And we don't promote because we don't want to, uh, we want people to just know that every time they come in, they're going to have something great. And we don't tell them to share. We want to create an experience that's so good that they just share of their own accord. And I think that's kind of the healthy place is we want someone to come in and have such a good time. We want them to be connected with them. We want them to feel meaning. We want their lives to be impacted. Um, not because of FOMO, but be, not, not because we want to make other people jealous because we want the transformation that happens in their lives to be so good that it's attractive to other people. Mm. Right. It's like that St. Francis of Assisi quote that no one knows if it's actually from him, you know, preach the gospel when necessary, use words mm-hmm. like your life should be like create experiences that are so attractional that you don't have to be strategic about FOMO because you're creating it on just by accident because people's lives are being impacted in ways that they want to share with other people. You know? So really let's, let's just get the sort of summer summarize how we got to this point. Yeah. Fear of missing out is a real thing and we shouldn't, you know, just kind of snicker at it, laugh at it, and pretend like it'll go away with the next generation. Because I just think the more technology, the more experiences that we have to uh, to uh, integrate to our, integrate lives, our yeah. lives, yeah, that we will see more and more of this. In three quarters will will be even become greater. Uh, to use the statistic from that Time article, uh, so it's a real thing, and we as the church need to understand it's a real thing, and then begin to care for the people who experience this anxiety in ways by providing experiences for them that where they can find that community and they can be addressed without 
manipulating it without it being agenda. And I know there's a fine line there because you want people to share, like, so to speak, right, the things that you're doing. But at the same time, we're not wanting to manufacture a real, uh, uh, make a um, fake news out of it, if oh, you will, yeah. right? So instead, well, what we need to begin to do is provide an environment for people to like you said, experience what's excellent. And then through word of mouth or what I sometimes refer to as even being stronger than word of mouth, alluding to your Assisi quote, Francis of Assisi quote, would be activity from the heart, right? It's like this real sense of, yeah, you talk about it, but you actually do it as well. Um, so how then, if, if we were to give advice then to people in yeah. the church, how would you say uh, they need to respond to this and or create what kind of environments they need to create to combat this FOMO? Yeah. So I've got just a few things written down here. And one of them is um, find your enthusiasm. I don't know about you, but I just encounter so many pastors and leaders in their church communities and they're burned out or they're not excited about the church that they lead. Um, They focus on the negative. Last podcast, we did that uh, Kierkegaard quote uh, about that, you know, too many people criticize the church that God has given them. Um, what I, what I realized is you have to believe if you want to create something that's exciting for people, you have to believe that God is using your community for something great. Like you have to believe that there is something worthwhile there and maybe there's problems and maybe there's like all sorts of hurdles and obstacles and people that you wish maybe weren't there, but you've got to be, find something you're enthusiastic about. You've got to find something that you believe God is pouring into. And um, I would say that's that's one of the biggest pieces of advice. And that's where you get these influencers, right? They're not trying to create FOMO. The people that create FOMO in other people's lives are just kind of doing things enthusiastically and sharing them excitedly. There's a big difference between trying to manipulate someone's FOMO and just be excited about something, you know? Right. And so I think that's one thing that... Um, you know, I'm, I'm a seven on the Enneagram. I don't know how many people are listening to that. Seven is the enthusiast. So this to me is like my bread and butter. This is why I'm not very organized, right? I, I'm, what? yeah, yeah. My boss is, you can know, you're getting here. better all the time. Yeah. All you're the time, on every day. But, um, but like my, my wheelhouse is the enthusiasm thing. And sometimes it can be over the top. I'm someone who told me once, you know, when they first met me, we were like, you know, this guy's a little like, is this guy for real? You know, is he, can he be this enthusiastic in real life? And uh, so I apologize, but I think that there's something to that, that a lot of the success I've had in ministry has been because I, um, here's the key for me. I can't fake it. I cannot fake enthusiasm. If I'm not excited about something, it's heartbreaking for me. It just rips me apart inside. I have to find the authentic, true thing that I'm excited about and that I have to hold that right at the center of who I am and it's center of my leadership. So that's my piece of advice there. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, I just, I think it's true for your life. As I listen to you say that, I would say I can definitely tell when you're enthusiastic about something and when you're not and how it directs your next steps, whatever those need to be in order to get where you're trying to go. So body language changes, um, the way you articulate uh, um, the, the task or the assignment to others changes based on your enthusiasm. I think that's true for all of us. We all have things we're more passionate about or more enthused about. I think I think the hard part is realizing that in our context, we're never going to be fully enthusiastic about everything, and we look for that. And so when we don't find it to be there all the time, we create a narrative that maybe I can go somewhere else and find it, or maybe I should change this in order to make it happen. When I think the reality is highlighting 
the enthusiasm as often as you can that you do have, not Mm -hmm. manufacturing or trying to pretend like it's better somewhere else. What is it? The old grass is greener on the other side kind of thing. And so what we need is people who are going to commit to highlighting or putting a light on that enthusiasm over and over and over again, even if it's the same, comes from the same, you know, uh, place inside the inside of that community. At least it's something to grab onto. And, and maybe leaders need to look for that more than they need to look at ways to manufacture or make something enthusiastic that's, right. that's not. Because it's contagious. If you're passionate about something, other people will, you know, will catch that. Um, was it John Wesley who said preaching is setting yourself on fire and having people come to watch you burn? Yeah, I think he said, yeah, I mean, I can't remember messing how up that said, quote a little well, bit. Well, I think he, I don't think, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but I, you know, yeah, w- light yourself on fire and, wa- and watch, people will come and watch you burn. Yeah. Uh, which that's a little dreary now that I'm thinking about it. But the idea is, is kind of true is that, you know, that people are looking for people who are passionate about something. Right. Um, and part of that, you might be listening to this and think, well, I'm just not, I'm not a seven right now. That's, I'm not that on the Enneagram. I don't, I'm not an excitable person. Um, a lot about passion and excitement comes from, I think, um, taking the time to take care of yourself, reflecting. Uh, people who are unbalanced, it's really hard to be excited about stuff, right? Because your own life is kind of all over the place. Um, I had a therapist tell me once um, to, this is, uh, let me think about it. I think it's another acronym. Oh, no, it's not an acronym at all. It's called Personal Craziness Index. And basically, PCI. PCI, yeah. You have to look at your life and be like, hey, uh, is my house clean? Are my dishes done? Is my car a mess? Is, am I going to the gym? Am I eating healthy? Um, are my relationships in good places? Am I journaling? Am I praying? You know, if you, if your life is in shambles, you're not, you're going to have a hard time being enthusiastic about something. So a lot of this, a lot of attitude comes from this place of, you know, you need to be in a, in a somewhat healthy place or else your enthusiasm is going to be all over the map. Totally agree. When you, while you're thinking about the second point you want to make, let me, I'll just say that I had a boss one time who, whenever he would lead meetings for the executive team, one of the first questions he would ask, because it was a large organization and he couldn't be involved in every single aspect day to day, but he wanted to be up to speed on what was happening within the company. He would always ask this question, what should I be excited about? And it wasn't like, there's nothing exciting going on. Tell me, please, what could be? It was more like, what's exciting you? Where do you, are you finding enthusiasm so that I can join you in that enthusiasm? So I love that as question. you're ready for, as you're getting ready to talk point number two, let me, let me just say, I think if we're leaders and we, and, 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 let me back up, when we're acting as a leader and running meetings or whatever, f- ask that question, you know, where do, where, what should I be excited about? Yeah. And then listen to people share what their passions, what their enthusiasm, their excitement is, and then continue to highlight that from an organizational way. And I think it'll continue to boost uh, across the border or just continue to develop a culture of enthusiasm versus just one or two people who are excited about their particular unique passions. Yeah. So anyway, enthusiasm. What's the Love second it. one? second one we need to consider is uh, the experience of someone walking into your community for the first time. Uh, this, I think, is one of the biggest shortcomings of, of leaders. It's an area where we get caught up. We're so used to our experience. We're so used to the familiarity of our church, of our week, of our schedules, of what like, walking in the building feels like for us, that sometimes we forget what it feels like for the experience of that new person. 
So I would guide, uh, when we did a church plant, I would, or I had a leadership team, I guided our leadership team through the experience of, all right, we're going to pretend. I'm literally going to walk you through. I want you to close your eyes and pretend that you're coming to this church for the first time. And you drive up, you get out of your car, and this is what you see. How do you feel? And then I'd have them talk about it, or they wrote it down, and then I moved on. Okay, now you walk in. There's someone who greets you. Think of the faces you see every Sunday. What does it look like? And walk them through the experience so they could go into the shoes of someone just mentally. Combining that with actually like interviewing, I would have like guests, uh, like secret shoppers, which sounds like commercialistic, right? Or uh, consumeristic, but uh, it was helpful. I had friends come in and then afterwards they were like, oh man, I got greeted by five different people. I knew exactly where to go. You might want to consider a sign over here, right? Their experience of coming in. And I think uh, we don't go through the eyes of someone else enough. Uh, I think we have an inferiority complex when it comes to church that goes back to the enthusiasm thing. So a lot of us have anxiety for that. You know, how do we get that person to stick instead of how do we help them have an amazing experience when they come to this thing? Um, the third thing I think we need to talk about is I, I meet so many churches who just kind of come to this topic with this idea of, Oh, our theology is attractive enough. Uh, you know, I've heard Methodist pastors, for instance, say like, oh, we're pretty inclusive. Uh, we've, you know, at least we're not Baptists, right? That's kind of a joke that goes around. We can compare ourselves to other denominations. Um, for the average millennial, they're not making their community decisions based on theology alone. I think, first of all, it's not on your website, probably, if you even have a website. Um, they might come in, everybody's going to believe slightly different things. It might be in the sermon, but a lot of people are going to make their decision not just on the theology. It's important. I've had people not become church members because of the church's stance on big theological issues. The thing we have to realize is that people are making decisions not just on theology. Like That might be part of it, but if your attitude is, well, our theology is attractive enough or our denomination should be attractive, like that is the wrong mentality. You have to think, like, what about our community? Like People want what they're looking for, what's attractive to them is when I walk in, do I feel like this is something where I can make friends? Is it something that I will enjoy? People are not coming in with, will this transform my life? <laughs> not necessarily. Some people might. Some, you know, some people might. But, but generally speaking, people are coming in to say, hey, could I make some friends here? Is this a community that I could call my own? And, uh, and yeah, that means that we have to do some work. That means that we have to help guide that experience and create and I think some more community. and more people, to your point, more and more people every day are thinking of it not in terms of like what do you believe because they have no idea even what the church experience is is like so if you're fortunate enough to have millennial or a young gen z person come into your community it's probably very likely that they have no framework for any sort of doctrinal positioning whatsoever anyways right and so to lead with even if it's in your own thinking to lead with your theological framework or the tenets of your the you know your particular denominational persuasion might make you feel good but it doesn't do anything for anybody ex- unless it's applied right unless it is lived out because it, you know ecclesiologically speaking yeah if we can start you know to to make our theology real because we're living it out that's different than if we just say, hey, we have this cool theological framework and people will be interested in it because it has to deal with social good and it has to do with being inclusive and it has to do with all of this you know, new ways that we're experiencing God, this transcendence or whatever. Those are all great things. 
except it's not as great as right living out the theology in a way that attracts people. Uh, so I, 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 I feel like, like I feel like lived we're out theology. Yeah, I feel like we're getting closer to providing a framework in this podcast for people to actually grab hold of and say, well, what are some things that I could do? One of the things you might want to start doing, if you, especially if you're in an environment where or in a department in your church, or have an influence, whatever the right word is, start teaching on this stuff. Start showing the difference between knowing something theologically and living out your theology. I see I think this that's key. all the time in the mainline church. I see people who have uh, big, lofty theological concepts and then have no pursuit of holiness or piety in their own lives. You know, you would not know by looking at them other than, you know, that they're loud and talk all the time about these ideas that they are actually living transformed lives. And I think some mainline folks would say, well, I see in in outside mainline, you know, ways of doing church, whether it be, you know, considered evangelical or whatever the term they might put on it, they would say, well, these people act a certain way, but they have no idea why. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So it's somewhere in between. It is somewhere in between. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, so what you have, enthusiasm, I'll call it empathy, that was number two, or stepping into somebody else's shoes, and then realizing that theology lived is better than just theology talked about, if I can say it that way. What, is there anything else you want to add? No, I think we, I think we've covered a lot of different concepts. Guys, we hope that this has been helpful in kind of understanding a little bit of the millennial mindset. There's nothing wrong with trying to create engaging, exciting, enthusiasm-filled experiences Um, But we're not giving you this insight, again, as a manipulative tool to grow your church. This is all about creating community and connection for people who are starving for the realization that they're loved and they're part of something. Like we have this hunger in us. And so that's what I want to leave us with is just like that you find the good thing, find what God, how God is using your community and man, get excited about it and invite people into it. And there will be people who don't want to miss out on that. They will see the transformation that's happening in other people's lives and they're going to want to be part of it. Yeah, that's big. And just one last thing to add on to it is just remember like, when you yourself feel a little FOMO, just remember that things are never as good as they seem or as bad as they seem, right? So that Facebook post you're looking at that reveals some amazing thing you missed, um, just remember like people are going to share the just best of what they have, not the actual experience itself. Um, and you know, I think I think it's just important to keep in mind as we grow as individuals because we can project FOMO on other people or we can begin to even recognize it, I should say, and we can begin to recognize it in our own life and say, how am I going to help myself as I help others through this? So just, you know, just remember that it's, it's a lot of what we see out there isn't as true as we might think it is. And I think that helps me offset it a little bit to say like, what am I actually missing out on here? Like, the best image that you could take is the one you posted. But what happened the other, you know, three hours you were at that experience or whatever the case may be. So it's just a different way of thinking about it. Yeah, we got to be real. Well, thanks for listening to the Burlap Podcast, and we will see you next time.